This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And welcome, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It is uh, great to be with you this morning. And we are always uh, happy and excited to welcome attorney Richard Courtney to the show. Uh, Rick, would you please remind us of your background and your practice area? Sure, I'm glad to be back with you. I, I started out in a civil, general civil law practice. I graduated from Ole Miss Law School in December of 77 and started practicing with my dad in Jackson in 78. And uh, in 1985, I joined forces with my current partner, an entertainment law attorney, and we've been together uh, since then. My daughters were born in 1979, and one of my twin daughters has Melanie, uh, has cerebral palsy. She's a wheelchair user and lives at, a, at home with us still. Both my daughters work for me and my law firm. Uh, and so if you want to see them, you can go on our website, elderlawms.com, and see my staff, including my daughters. But uh, Melanie's disability issues gave rise to a focus in our personal world and then in my professional world in special needs planning uh, with uh, planning for families that have a child or a grandchild or a person with a disability, an adult, and also for the disabled person themselves, uh, we, we help plan. We work with attorneys and financial planners and CPAs and uh, working with special needs law. And that I came to elder law through special needs law. A lot of elder law attorneys will move from elder law into special needs law because there are so many similarities. Medicaid, uh, for long-term care, um, you know, public benefits programs, uh, planning for uh, uh, care and uh, long-term needs. And so that's, that's how I got into doing what I do 30-plus years ago. Well, and, you know, one of the areas, uh, Liz, that uh, Rick specializes in is just t- taking care of situations where there's been some type of elder abuse uh, or undue influence. Uh, but really, you know, this topic goes beyond just the elderly, and we're talking about anyone who's vulnerable. So we're thinking about the coverage of uh, uh, Britney Spears and her conservatorship and the abuses we found out that took place, at least financially, certainly, um, in her estate uh, that uh, of conservatorship. So, Rick, when is a person placed under a conservatorship or, or guardianship? Well, our law says that someone can be placed under a guardianship or conservatorship if they are unable to manage their own personal or financial affairs. It's not a categorical or diagnostic thing, the fact that somebody's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Well, dad's got Alzheimer's. Well, so he needs a guardian. No, that's not necessarily so. Dad may still have the legal capacity, mental capacity to do any of the legal transactions that we can do. But if for some reason a person is unable to manage their own personal affairs, such as 
well, we went over on the holidays and dad's medications were thrown out on the counter, or he's not eating well, he's losing weight, or his caregiver's not feeding him well, or he's, he's not taking care of his health needs, though, or he's wandering at night. Those are personal affairs. They're not financial, they're personal. If he's unable to manage his personal affairs, then he may need a guardian to sort of oversee that. A conservator is gonna oversee financial things. So if dad's bills aren't getting paid or uh, you know he's being exploited financially, then there may need to be a court appointed conservator to take management control of those financial things for him. Well, can someone, you know, that's that's when the court appoints that conservator or uh, guardian. Could I, in advance, figure out who, if I, if that ever happens to me, I want to take care of my my affairs for me? Is there a way to do that? Absolutely, and that's what you're teaching your students in the estate planning courses and things there at Ole Miss Law School, uh, and they really need to know it. All attorneys really should get involved more in the area of planning for potential incapacity. Statistically, um, the ABA's done studies and the statistics show that any of us at any age, my daughters who are in their 40s, my wife and I who are in our mid-60s, my mom who's 91, uh, we all are three to three and a half times more likely to become incapacitated from a disability than we are to die during any period that you project. So if I say, well, what about the next 10 years for me? I'm three times more likely to become incapacitated from a disability than I am to die in the next 10 years. So people think, well, an estate plan is a will. I just need a simple will. No, that says what happens with your stuff when you die. It does nothing to help you plan for an incapacity that may come through an injury or an illness. So yes, we can do powers of attorney, I can do a power of attorney for medical care. We'll talk about maybe a little bit more um, health care directive. And that says I get to pick who would make medical or health care decisions for me if I can't. And it doesn't take away my authority to make them as long as I have the ability to do that. But uh, it says who will make the decisions and how they will make the decisions if I can't. A financial power of attorney says who will manage my property my insurances, my bank accounts and money assets if I'm unable to do that. And I can put rules and checks and balances in powers of attorney. I tell my clients, this is not a DIY project. You know, it really, there are things you'll miss if you try to Google you up a power of attorney on the internet. I mean, they may not have the things in it that you want it should have rules in it. So if you want to say, I appoint my daughter as power of attorney, but she has to give current statements of investments and so forth to someone else. So they are looking over it. That's perfectly okay. And it may give more oversight and protection of how your affairs are being handled. So powers of attorney certainly, and certain trusts can be helpful too in uh, protecting your affairs, even if you become incapacitated. Well, that's an important point. And so it, 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 becoming incapacitated, who decides the point at which a person is incapacitated? I know we're going to talk about this more uh, throughout the show, but just generally, what does it mean to, to be someone who doesn't have capacity? Is that a legal standard, a medical standard, or is it, is it both? 
Well, in the medical world, it's been more of a diagnostic thing to say competency. If someone's incompetent, a doctor might say they are because of a diagnosis of some sort. But in the legal world, capacity is the ability, the mental or intellectual ability to understand the nature and effect of what you're doing, of doing a will, of doing a power of attorney, of doing a deed or a contract. So can the person understand the, the essential elements of that transaction, who is involved, what is involved if I'm doing a will? Well, what do I own? I have to understand what I own and what I control in assets. And then I need to uh, know who I trust and love and want to leave those two. Then I can make a direction to someone like a lawyer. Here's what I want my will to say. Well, that is the level of capacity to do a will. And it doesn't matter if I've been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia or Alzheimer's or cerebral palsy or whatever, if I understand those elements, I can do a valid will or power of attorney or deed or trust and that sort of thing. So that's capacity. And lawyers are supposed to interview clients sufficiently to understand, well, do I think this person understands the things necessary to know what I'm supposed to do for them that they want me to draft? And so before I draft and get them to sign a document, I have to believe they understand those things. Right. And you mentioned they need to know their, who their people are and who their pro what their property is and how, you know, how this document ties all those together. Um, do they have to know, like, can they, do they have to know all the stocks that they own? Do they have to know every asset they own? Oh, no. And I, I tell clients that a lot of, um, in the past, a lot of, homemaker housewives who didn't work outside the home. They didn't know all the details of bank account balances and things that their husbands were, gov were uh, taking care of, managing. No, you don't have to understand all of those details. I can't tell you right now the balance in one of our checking accounts. I just don't know. My wife usually handles that. So, uh, but I do know that we have checking accounts at a couple of banks. I know that we own a home. I know what that we don't own other property. You know, so those are the basic things that um, clients can understand and still know what they're doing. A person, an older person. You know, we kids, adult children, often want to take over. We think, well, mom can't do stuff. Or well, let's let mom be mom. You know, it's the it's the powder. I think I've heard it called the powdered butt syndrome. She powdered my butt first. I don't get to take over. And, you know, just because, she, you know, she, she was my mom. I need to let her, you know, be herself and do what she can do. And that's part of the ageism issue we have to deal with in elder law. Let's not, let's not think just because people are getting older, they're losing the abilities to manage their own affairs. Let's watch and see how they need help and be there to offer it, but don't try to take over. You can send us your questions by email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing elder law and undue influence. Now, if there is a life-threatening situation, do call 911 to make a report, but we'll have other options for elder abuse for you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed the end of our program, you can listen to the whole show. Our website is inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now, we'll have the Mississippi Adult Protective Services website on the information for this broadcast. The Vulnerable Persons Abuse Hotline is, if you've got a pencil, 844-437-6282. That's where you can report abuse or neglect that you may witness, but you can also call local law enforcement agency or 911 if you think the situation is a life-threatening emergency. And that's the advice of the Mississippi Adult Protective Services. This morning, we are talking about elder abuse, undue influence. Our guest is Richard Courtney, and he's not only a fellow of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, he's also a fellow of the American College of Trust and Estate Council. We do have a phone call. It is Joe from Jackson Natchez. Joe from Natchez. Joe, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Okay, I just got a real short question, and I can hang up once once the answer. Uh, if you lose, when you lose a loved one, say from a and a major accident, uh, they are basically uh, lose their life on site. Is there any is there any method that you can go and look up any uh, insurance uh, bank accounts that they may have had that wasn't able to be disclosed because of their immediate death? Uh, just asking because no one if you don't tell anyone that you are their beneficiary on, on, on your policy no one would ever know so I'm just wondering have anybody created a search engine or something that can do that for you now and I'll hang up and listen thanks Joe yeah Joe thanks uh, you know we've had clients ask that before I don't know there may be some company out there I just don't know off the top of my head that will uh, try to review insurance company policy, but I don't know that that's going to be very effective because of privacy issues. It's if um, someone has passed away and you think they may have had some insurance policies that you you or some other family might be a beneficiary, you could um, you could try to call around to those, but they're not going to talk to you about those policies if you're not a beneficiary. So uh, it's kind of difficult to find out that information um, unless you have something. That's why I think for the parents, who, who everybody out there who's thinking about planning, think about it from the other end. I want to make it easy for my children, my heirs, my beneficiaries to find out what it is they're going to have after I'm gone. So do put down lists of things 
put it where someone can find it uh, as part of your planning uh, so that, you know, like Joe, you're not left in the dark. The other people aren't left in the dark later trying to locate that. Yeah, and uh, Joe, that's I mean, it's such a great question. I actually helped a family within the state, uh, uh, someone who died suddenly in November, you know, during the during COVID, and it was same exactly what Rick is saying. I mean, part of it is it then becomes this mystery of what did you try to unravel? We we knew the person was employed. We checked to see that she had insurance through uh, her employer, and she did. She actually had a life insurance policy. Um, was mentioned in the chat. I mean, have the, have their bills forwarded to somebody or have their mail forwarded to somebody because you'll get the bills pretty quickly because part of what we have to do is make sure the creditors are, are paid. Uh, this family didn't know whether her car had a lien on it or not. They found out pretty quickly when they had the, <laughs> the uh, mail forwarded and they started getting nasty notes from the, the, the company. But that, I mean, so one, one thing I think that, that people like Rick and I want listeners to do, tell somebody what you have and where to find it. It should don't don't create a mystery for them to to solve after death. Uh, and we never know when that death is going to occur. So the sooner we can start having those conversations, the better. Yeah, and I think uh, Liz just pointed out to us that the state treasurer's office, I believe, has an unclaimed property uh, entity that you can check with to see if there are any bank accounts or money accounts that someone has left. So you might check there too. That's that's a great question, I, you know. And 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 general, I mean, when we talk about estate planning, we're talking about life planning, you and me. And you know, and, and and you mentioned the planning for incapacity and thinking about, you know, having these conversations to have somebody who's who will step in at that point of death to make it easier for the family. But now let's go back to our, our discussion about elder abuse and 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 generally vulnerable person abuse. What what is a vulnerable person? Well, um, a vulnerable person is defined under our Vulnerable Adults Act as any person, including children, a child, whose ability to perform the normal activities of daily living or to provide for his or her own care or protection is impaired due to some mental, emotional, physical, or developmental disability or dysfunction or brain damage or the infirmities of aging. Okay, so it's any person whose ability to perform normal daily activities for themselves or provide for their own care is impaired. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean being old is a vulnerable person. You know, I'm I'm 67. I'm not a vulnerable person. I don't think I qualify. You know. Um, so I can provide for my own normal daily activities of daily living, my own care and protection. So, but if someone has limitations because of mental, physical, uh, cognitive, developmental disabilities, and they're unable to provide for themselves, then that's a vulnerable person. Yes, can be an adult. We have a call. We have a call. We're going to go. We're going to go to Jesse in Ridgeland. Uh, good morning. How are you guys today? We're great, Jesse. Thanks for calling in. What's your comment or question for our guest, Richard Courtney, who's an estate and elder law lawyer and special needs lawyer? Um, I actually have a question uh, involving uh, wills. Um, whenever uh, I'm currently listed as a uh, executor 
Hardeep back here on my uh, mother's will for when the time comes. Uh, once she has passed, uh, what all is involved in uh, executing the will, getting it probated, and any real estate that she has listed uh, on there? How do I get a hold of, do I need a court order to get the deeds and change the name listed on the deeds and whatnot? All right, Justin, good question. Uh, I've told folks before who said, well, I, I'm an executor of my parents' will. What do I have to do? I tell them, after the death, immediately, there's no deadline for probating a will. It doesn't matter how fast you get to that. So first of all, it's taking care of the family, you know, the grieving process, taking care of one another. But the executor has two primary, in my view, and Dean Gershom may have some others, um, the two primary responsibilities. One, get possession of the original will. That's what has to be filed to open a probate. So go find the original will before somebody who doesn't like it get, tears it up and it's not there anymore. The second thing okay. is to any of the deceased parents' property and assets, put them in safekeeping. We've heard of situations where nieces, nephews, other children come running in and out of the house now that mom's deceased and there's taken stuff. And now it creates a big fight among the kids. Well, I was supposed to get that or those things, and now you took them, and, and that's not what you want. The executor's job is to put those assets under safekeeping, change locks, put, uh, take things out of the house with, you know, do an inventory, do a video saying, well, I'm taking the silver and the coin collection. I'm putting it over here in the bank lockbox, and somebody else knows you did that. So those things you do first. Then when you get ready to do the business of sitting down with a lawyer, go to a lawyer who can do the probate, give them the original will and the information needed to open that estate. The lawyer will prepare the pleadings and papers to file in court. The executor's job is primarily to sign documents at that point. And you may have to do an accounting of what, what, what mom had. The will may say that she waived accounting, so you don't have to do an inventory or an accounting of that. But then the lawyer will govern the process from then on. And at the end of estates, we, all, we always do a deed on real estate like you were talking about. We do an executor's deed out to whoever's supposed to get the property from the will so that there's an actual deed that goes into the land records. I think Professor Gershon could say, he tells his students, by law, the instant after mom died, her heirs or beneficiaries own that property. You are now the owners, but you don't have clear title yet until the probate is done. That's what probate does is clears the title. So that's how we do it. Okay. Okay. Once the uh, probate process starts, generally speaking, how long does something like that take, would you say? Well, there ha the petition has to be filed. A notice has to go in the local newspaper once a week for three weeks from the first day that it runs is published in the newspaper. The estate has to stay open for 90 days. So that's three months there. It usually takes a week or two to get the estate open and the notice to the paper. And then after the 90 days, the attorney can check to see if any creditors filed claims to get paid. If whether they do or don't, the court, the attorney can then go back and file a petition to close the estate, pay any creditors who filed, 
and then uh, close the estate. So it's going to take at least four months to get the estate open, the 90-day waiting period, and to get it closed. And that's if somebody's just sprinting along with the process. And most of the time, we tell folks it'll be about six months uh, for us if there's no complications. Okay. All right. That's what I need to know. I sure appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Jesse. You can always email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are talking with attorney Richard Courtney about elder law, elder abuse, estates, special needs, trusts, any of that information. We're you can find additional information on the subject of elder abuse and undue influence in an unusual location. Well, I think it's unusual, but it, it might not surprise you. I'll tell you more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We love our podcasts, and I can't tell you how many estates and executors and probate podcasts we have, but it's a lot. So if you'd like more information on this subject, everybody's going to touch upon at some point, uh, find our podcast just go to In Legal Terms, then you can touch the photo on your podcasting platform. You can be notified when our new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we are talking uh, about elder abuse and undue influence with our guest, Attorney Richard Courtney. But by the four calls waiting, we'll have a, a, a rainbow of topics that we will discuss. And this is one thing I find fascinating. I am always surprised what you can learn from the Mississippi State Extension Service. They have information on senior concerns such as elder abuse, financial abuse, and identity theft. I'll have that Mississippi State Extension Service website on the information page for this broadcast, which you can see as a podcast or you can find on our website, inlegalterms.com. 
mpbonline.org. First, we're going to go to Gail, who's called in from Long Beach. Gail, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, unfortunately, I probably know the answer to this. Uh, my father recently uh, passed, back in March, his second wife, whom he adopted her child, and they had a child together, um, were in the will. She passed from Alzheimer's a couple of years ago. He, her and him had a will, and the will specifically omits me from anything. And I am, you know, a natural born. My parents were married. You know, my father was in the military. You know, he sent his support. You know, he even, you know, gave me away at my second wedding. But I have been totally excluded from this will. Do I have any recourse? Well, the my question, and that bears more questions, was the will done while your father clearly had mental capacity to understand what he was doing and and who his family yeah. was and all his relationships yes well if that's the case it's not likely that that will was done under undue influence which is something we're talking about here it's not it doesn't appear that his new wife your stepmom um, or her child had any influence on him in doing that will to omit you and maybe favor the, them, but I can't say what they what action they had. Even though he may have had capacity, if she exerted or that other uh, adopted child exerted influence over him to do that new will whenever it was done, then that to put to give them more and you less, that could be something subject to undue influence that you might have some recourse about. But again, those are factual determinations that would have to be made. Uh, did he have independent action? Did they participate in getting that will done that favors them and not you? Or did he do that on his own? And did the lawyer take notes and said, well, he was clear about why he did this. You know, it's just unfortunate, but um, that may be the, the response. Okay. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. We appreciate you calling in. We're going to stay on the coast and go to Bay St. Louis and talk to Alice. Alice, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, I'm taking care of a person who has a mental disability, but not through intellectual, through mental illness for 32 years. And... Um, I am now getting older myself. He is 14 years younger than I am, and he has a, care, a paid caregiver that's been very good for the past two years. However, our experience with that has been frightening at times with, you know, the level of care you can get from um, certain agencies or independently. So I'm concerned that if something happens to me and I'm incapacitated, um, the only alternative for him might be an institution. But since he is um, on Medicare, Medicaid himself, 
um, it's unlikely he would end up in any sort of private situation. His family has um, very, very good income, but have just got well, the father died and the mother is now um, uninterested and, and perhaps not making the best judgments, but has completely excluded him. And I'm wondering what, you know, out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. Um, I'm wondering what sort of um, arrangements could be made for him other than institutionalization. And that's not even an option much in this state. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it might be, depending on his financial resources and how those are structured, you said he's on Medicare and Medicaid. If he's qualified yeah. by disability to be on Medicaid, yeah. not just mm -hmm. income, and then it could be that he could qualify to be uh, in a nursing home setting or an institutional setting if you weren't if he weren't able to be cared for in a community setting like you're doing now otherwise you know, the there are waiver programs through medicaid i don't know if you have mm -hmm. looked into that yes that's how he's cared for um at least in some ways um he has been uh, he has severe ocd behaviors that would have eliminated him from community settings um, we've just adapted things to his illness, the structure of the house, everything. Um, yeah, well, and, um, if he, it's, it sounds like that's pretty much a private pay situation to keep him in the community in a private setting because I don't know of any Medicaid or Social Security or um, Medicare that would pay that pay for the caregiving unless he qualifies for the Medicaid waiver. The in, well, yeah, uh, that's what I said. He has that care. He's got that. That's, so the, that's how he's got his paid caregiver is through the IDD waiver? Yes, a person that comes the, every day. Uh, yeah, the intellectual day, seven days a week. Yeah, the intellectual well, um, development disabled waiver. Yeah. Yes, well, that, that's all I, at this point, that's all I have in mind as a possible additional resource to fund his care. Then it's about just trying to find where he could be, set up a relationship with a place, uh, sort of pave the way, mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, but that's that's all I could offer at this point. Well, have you heard, like in Tennessee, there's a, a, um, an independent board that a person can form for themselves and use Medicaid dollars. Has that ever been explored in the state? Um, I don't in know. Other words, it's called it's called a micro board, and I yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. familiar with it, but I, I don't know of any situations where it's been done in this state. But that doesn't mean mm -hmm. it couldn't be. Uh, so, and also is there is working other, on that. Well, there's okay. another option that someone who goes into a nursing home on Medicaid and who decides yeah. I don't want to live in the nursing home. I'd rather be out in the community in an apartment or my own home can use what's called the Bridge to Independence or the B2I program of Medicaid. And, and under that, they can say, well, we're gonna let this person go transition from the nursing home out to home, take their Medicaid dollars with them, and they don't have to get on a waiver program. So that's possible. But that's all I know, and we probably um, need to move on to another call right now, okay. Dave. All right, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. 
Thank you, Alice, for calling in from Bay St. Louis. Now we're going to go to the Delta and speak with Bobby in Yazoo City. Bobby, thanks so much for calling in in legal terms. What's your comment or question? Yes, if a member of his family passes away and he's on a living will with his family and that's the only finances left, who's responsible to pay for his burial? Well, you said living will. Uh, you might mean living trust? Yeah. That well, it's a lot of land, about half a million on his part. But uh, okay. he owes everybody so much money. Uh, and generally, yeah, generally speaking, Bobby, the, the person who passes away, their estate is responsible to pay for the expenses of their last illness and burial. It comes out of the estate, property or money, unless someone else like family members go ahead and pay that. Okay, so that means that it, the sale of the real estate would, or him owning the real estate means that the family members are responsible for his burial? Well, that's going to be up to the family as to how and where he is buried. Um, and so that's that's really not talking about how, how to pay for that. Uh, that's going to be a personal decision about the family on how and where he gets buried um, to work that out um, or cremated or whatever his choice was or the family's choice is. But um, the, the expenses of that would come out of his estate if they're not paid for some other way. Because if he, okay. if he is, yeah, Professor, do you have a, a response? So to one thought. I mean, so I, th I think he's, I think the caller is saying that they're going to sell this land. And I guess before the proceeds would be distributed to the family, they would have to pay all their creditors. That would include the funeral expenses. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I always tell my classes, make sure your clients tell somebody how they want to be buried and how they're going to pay for it or whether they're going to want to be cremated or donate their body to science or whatever. The will is not the appropriate place to put that information because that's probably too late. But um, and so those are conversations we should be having. But uh, I just wanted to, to agree, uh, you know, to support what Rick is saying and then just say, hey, you know, that money is going to come from somewhere and probably before you get anything. It's going to come from that uh, that estate. Bobby, okay. did that Thank answer you. your question? Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. We're going to take your questions on our email address. Don't forget, you can email us anytime, legalterms at mpbonline.org. How do you like getting advice from attorney Richard Courtney? I'll tell you where you can get or hear more next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR's Morning Edition. People have stories about their car, that long summertime family road trip, that hand-me-down first car they got when they turned 16, the first car they bought on their own. And cars can generate other kinds of stories, like the kind you hear on this station. When you donate a vehicle to this station, the proceeds bring you stories from around the world. Here's how to get started. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, do not forget that you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. We are so pleased to have Richard Courtney with us again today. You can hear his past broadcast with us on our podcasts. He was with us on April 13th, 2021, and also on October 27th of 2020. And you can read more about elder law and estate law on his firm's website, elderlawms.com. We've got two more phone calls to get to. We're going to go to Philadelphia and speak with Dwight. Dwight, thanks for calling in, to in legal terms today. What's your comment or question? Good morning. Uh, faithful listener, first-time caller. Um, I'm calling in regards to my father. Uh, I have another brother, myself, and myself which he is not listed as our father on our birth certificate at all. That's the first problem. Uh, What is it I can do about that to acknowledge the fact that he, myself, and my brother are heirs? He's only heirs, actually. And Dwight, is your father still living? Yes, he is. Well, I think there's a way to petition the Department of Vital Records of the State Department of Health um, to put, to amend a birth certificate to show someone who was omitted, um, but so so your birth certificates might be uh, amended if you and he you and your father uh, file a petition with the Department of Vital Records. I haven't done that in many many years and don't know that I would know the process right now, but. Uh, there is a process to get a birth certificate amended. Okay, because I have mine does not have a father listed. I'm not sure about my brother, whether I know he's not listed as his father, but I don't know if he has a father listed on his birth certificate. Mine has yeah. a father's blank. Is okay, your mother still? Yeah. No, she's okay. not. Okay. Okay, the second thing is. Is it a way to, as far as his property, if he places us like as joint owners with right of survivorship, would that eliminate having to go through probate if he passes? Yes, because you and your brother would be surviving joint owners. Whether his children are recognized as his children or not, you would be the surviving joint owners. 
So even if he did that, I wouldn't have to concern myself about the birth certificate as far as the real estate is concerned. That's correct. Okay. Um, third, he actually has a slight bit of undue influence from a next of kin, his sister. Uh, she controls a lot of his finances and, and business affairs. Um, as far as whatever is left in his estate, if we can't get the property issue signed or the amendment done, and the fact that he's acknowledged us as his children, but he's never had anything in writing, is that a matter of just petitioning the, the uh, probate uh, at the time he passes if none of this other stuff comes to fruition? Uh, yes, you just have to file a petition and probate to have the court determine what should occur, I think. So, um, yeah, we need to, I believe, move on to one more caller. Did that take care of it, Dwight? Yeah, I guess so. That, that's the gist of it. I really appreciate it. All right, I thank you, you can, very much. And you can call me at my office to follow up at 601-987-3000 if you like. All right. That's awfully nice of you to give out your phone number, Mr. Courtney. Let's finish up from Mobile and speak with John. John, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Uh, thank you for taking my call, Liz. Um, I became aware of a situation Saturday uh, when I bumped into a lady at the library. Um, we were acquainted through, uh, let's see, a shop I used to work at, and she was a customer. That's, you know, the, the basis of our relationship. But uh, she uh, told me um, that uh, her companion... She must. She must be in her seventies, and her companion is probably probably in his eighties, upper eighties. And she confided to me that uh, uh, this man had uh, suddenly and unexpectedly passed away, and um, that uh, she, uh, the house that they were living in, was uh, not in her name. Uh, they are. I gathered that they were not married, so she faces the prospect of having nowhere to live. Uh, she said the house was part of his estate. Um, and I didn't feel right about just saying, well, good luck with that. Uh, and I wanted to find some way of uh, helping her. Uh, I guess it's pretty late in the show. Is there something you can tell her or that I could convey to her to do to secure her future. Well, uh, if they were not married, then she unfortunately doesn't have the protections of uh, homestead exemption to stay in the property. So if it was in his name only, it will go to his heirs or through his estate. So it may be that she has no legal rights to stay there. Um, but again, what other options are available to her, don't know unless, you know, somebody in that area can look into those for her and, and see what, what can be done uh, based on her ability to pay and resources and so forth. Uh, but not being married is an issue there. If he owned the home, she doesn't have homestead protections in that home to be able to stay. Um, and, and that's I, the only answer I can give you off the top of my head. 
All right. Um, I ask because uh, it just didn't seem right to walk away from that situation, and I knew that um, I saw that she was in distress and maybe not uh, thinking clearly enough about her options. Thanks, John. We appreciate you calling in. Uh, Rick, Courtney, we've got one minute. <laughs> what, uh, what bit of advice can you leave us with? I just want to reiterate something Professor Gershon said early on in the show. People need to plan. To avoid these situations, we've had so many different problems that came up during the show today that could have been avoided in large part by effective planning earlier on. And so setting up powers of attorney, setting up the people that you want to help you or make decisions for you down the road, setting up a will that clearly says how your property will be distributed so that there's not confusion or chaos about that after you're gone. Setting up a trust to put assets in a trust that can be managed maybe by yourself while you're capable, but if I become incapacitated, someone else can step in and manage those things for me. And then there's a smooth transition at each of those transition points. So that is the biggest point that I could make uh, based on the show today, Liz, and also just based on experience and what we see every day, um, plan, plan ahead, contact somebody who is a good estate planner and we're willing to help folks. Again, our website is elderlawms.com. And you can, there's some videos and information stuff we have there on the website. Call us if we can help. But planning is the best way to avoid problems down the road. And if folks are worried about a high attorney bill, I suppose the more prepared they are when they come to see you, uh, the cheaper their bill might be. That's right. I tell people I have two fees, a, a dual fee schedule, a nominal and a phenomenal fee. <laughs> nominal, it's a nominal fee to do the planning. It's a phenomenal fee to do the remedial work later when there's problems. Oh, so. goodness. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a good one to end on. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We need Java Chapman and Jay White to do this show every single week. But our big star is Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Big thank you to Rick Courtney, our guest today. I'm Liz Gill. Please join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.